Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone, welcome to LawPod. My name is Rachel Killeen, I'm a lecturer at the Law School and I'm joined in the podcast studio today by my new colleague and friend, Dr. Alice Panapinto. Hi Alice. Hi Rachel, thank you for having me this morning. Oh, thank you for being here. So the topic of today's episode is human rights in Palestine and in the second half of the episode you're going to hear Alice interview two visitors we recently had at the school, uh, Mr. Neri Ramati and Dr. Nahed Habibala. So Neri and Nahed were over presenting at an event Alice organised with some colleagues uh, from Queen's University and Trinity University, which focused on human rights issues in Palestine. And the conversation you will hear will hopefully give you a taster of the kind of research topics and legal issues that were covered in that seminar. However, for the first part of the show, I thought it would be both helpful and interesting for us to hear a bit more from Alice herself, and in particular about her own work in Palestine and her experiences of researching and working in the Middle East. Alice, uh, I googled you in preparation of this morning's conversation, and I discovered that your CV is already far too long and impressive to list in full. But to briefly give our listeners some background, uh, prior to joining us here at Queen's, Alice worked as a research fellow in Warwick Law School's Centre for Human Rights and Practice. And before that, she was based in Jerusalem as a 2014 UNDESA Fellow in Human Rights, where she worked on a range of international law and justice sector issues involving Palestine. And prior to that, she completed a PhD which explored transitional justice in Islamic contexts. And before entering academia, she worked for the International Labour Organization, interned at a geopolitics think tank, spent five months with the EU delegation to the UN and volunteered for interrights on LGBTQ and disability discrimination cases. So Alice, uh, it's a varied career already, um, but one of the threads that seems to run through it is an interest in human rights and justice issues. So I wondered if you could uh, tell me a little bit about why you're drawn to the type of work that you've done and maybe like what your career motivations have been? Thank you, Rachel. Um, That's a very good question. I suppose a lot of my work, as you rightly pointed out, is driven by um, themes of human rights and social justice. Um, And given um, the place I was born, um, Cairo, I've always had a special interest in the Middle East. It was for that reason that after my undergraduate degree, I decided to study at SOAS, where I specialised in human rights and Islamic law, and I also took modules on law and society in the Middle East and North Africa. So it was on the back of that experience, I suppose, that I then chose the Middle East to be um, the region that I wanted to explore in greater detail. I spent a little bit of time in summer 2008 in Damascus doing fieldwork for my dissertation project. And then after that... um, I didn't really think that I would go back to the Middle East to pursue further research in the area, but I had the opportunity in 2014 to go and work in Jerusalem as a UN DOZA fellow. And what was it that made you apply to do that? Or was that something that was offered to you? Or how did that come about? So I applied to a scheme, the UN Fellowship, um, and I didn't really have to specify areas that I was specifically interested in um, working in. Um, The themes that I indicated were human rights and the justice sector and post-conflict justice. 
Um, and I was actually selected to go to Jerusalem as part of that scheme. So Jerusalem chose me, not vice versa. Why was it? You said there that you didn't think you would return to that region. Was that for any particular reason or did you just kind of see your work moving in a different direction? My work had started to move a bit more thematically towards transitional justice. Um, and thematically, um, that, that kind of research was taking me to other parts of the world. However, um, with the Arab uprisings of 2011, I found myself attracted again to the Middle East. And that's how I decided that I would shift part of my own research back to that area. What was your work like there when you were in Jerusalem? My work was um, varied um, and sometimes quite difficult. Um, as an outsider to a protracted man-made uh, humanitarian conflict, um, it's always very difficult to know how to position oneself. Um, the position of privilege that the international community has in that environment makes it at times a bit uncomfortable for people who, like me, work in the human rights sector um, and don't necessarily have the lived experiences of the Palestinians and Israelis who uh, don't have a choice of leaving. Um, so I suppose it was a very important professional and personal growth experience for me working out there. Um, if I can tell you a bit more about the type of um, activities I was involved in, I was working on a range of human rights and international law themes for the organisation I was placed with, um, and that involved uh, monitoring and reporting on um, international law and human rights issues in uh, mostly Area C of the West Bank, which I have since um, been researching in my academic capacity. And that was how I became interested, first interested, I should say, in the plight of the Palestinian Bedouin at risk of forcible transfer, which is a war crime under uh, the ICC and, of course, a grave breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And what kind of response did you get to your presence there from local communities? You know, you talked about the privilege that you bring with you. Did you encounter any reluctance or hostility from those Bedouin communities or what is their response to international presence in the, in the region? I think this depends from community to community and from um, and different people would give you different answers. I would say that overall um, there is a sense of fatigue uh, amongst the communities um, that I was working with. I think after 50 years of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and, of course, the closure of Gaza, I think Palestinians are quite tired of having so much attention uh, directed towards them and yet so little progress um, in actually making peace based on a two-state solution um, a reality. Um, I think what what's special about working with um, the particular Bedouin community that I have um, met is that it has enabled me to put human faces and human stories to some of the big overarching international law themes. And also through my work in the area, I've met a whole host of Israeli human rights lawyers and human rights activists who work in solidarity with Palestinians, including the Bedouin. And that's quite a, 
quite an important uh, factor to remember um, for anyone who chooses to research the region or travels to the region. There are spaces of solidarity between Palestinians and Israelis who are struggling for a just um, peace. And of course, that must take into account the structural um, imbalance between the positions of Israelis and Palestinians. And for some, you know, for, for some organisations, I think that is definitely uh, very much the case. When you talk about the idea of having a human face to these, you know, large international law problems, are you thinking about the importance of you seeing that human face or about sharing those human stories with a wider audience? I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, I think there are themes that international law is not equipped to see um, and doing field research can bring out some of the themes that international law is um, unable to read. And I can speak a bit more about this if, uh, if we have time. But there's also another aspect in terms of bearing witness. Lots of people know about Israel-Palestine. Lots of people feel quite strongly um, about that part of the world. Um, but sometimes people haven't had the opportunity to travel to the region and work with communities affected um, and might have a bit of a black and white understanding of uh, the place. Obviously, it's very complex. Um, and I think having the opportunity to go to the region, see um, see things for myself, write about them, both in academic journals, but also for more... Um, for more wider audiences. And also recently I made a short documentary about uh, the school at uh, Al-Khan Al-Akhmar, which has been under demolition orders since 2009. This is all part of the story of making sure that these um, human rights violations are made more accessible to a wider audience. And perhaps that might um, foster uh, a sense of urgency to hold our political leaders accountable and so do you feel then that having had that experience and having met these people has changed the way you do your work or the way you do your research? Definitely, definitely. Um, a colleague and I were interviewing a Bedouin woman back in January this year, and this woman had been forcibly displaced from a Bedouin village uh, called um, Imrasas in the late 90s. Where her village used to be now is a part of the Israeli settlement Male Adumim, a settlement established in contravention of international law and in violation of the Geneva Conventions. And she told us a story in a way that international law is incapable of reading and understanding. And there were two key themes that really struck me there. First of all, a gender dimension. She was talking about the fact that prior to being relocated to a semi-urban setting and thus her family having to lose um, their livestock, um, she was an economically independent unit within her family. Um, out in the desert, she was responsible for the production of dairy products, so cheese and yogurt, um, and she would then go to market and sell cheese and yogurt. And the profits for that stayed with her. Of course, they were reinvested in the family. 
But the power dynamics within the family um, were improved by the fact that she was able to have an income of her own and contribute to the family. Of course, now, having lost all the animals in the process of relocation, she's a complete dependent of her husband. And that, of course, can can bear different uh, results in terms of uh, family harmony and uh, equality between spouses. The other issue, I suppose, that comes out of talking to people affected by um, international law violations is the, and this builds on this gendered aspect, um, is what happens once um, Bedouins are forcibly transferred to semi-urban environments and they lose their animals. They become, and I'm talking of the men here, um, they become um, unemployed overnight and thus they're more vulnerable to accepting low-paid, exploited labour in environments that perhaps would not be their primary choice. And we know from UN studies and other human rights reports that many Bedouin who have been forcibly transferred end up being cheap, exploitable workforce in Israeli settlements Mm -hmm. for construction and a range of other unskilled tasks. There's an indignity in that, isn't there, that goes beyond, you know, the typical definitions of a crime for you then to have to return to this place that you've been displaced from and work for the person that displaced you. That It's a story that maybe we don't see. Uh, so I think that's really valuable that you you get to have that human face. And, it, you know, with gender as well, I like I really see what you're talking about in having this human element to international law problems because you know when we talk about gender-based violence often we just talk about sexual violence and and the rape of women we forget that many other crimes and many other harms affect men and women differently because of their different placings within family units I think that's really valuable Uh, if you were I'm conscious of time so maybe just one final question thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that but if you what, what would you say would be the one thing that you wish people knew about Palestine as a result of your time there and as a result of your, your time spent with communities? Palestine and Palestinians, of course, are not a monolithical concept nor a, a monolithical society. So obviously each, each group, each individual would have um, her own identity, their own identity, depending on who they are. Urban Palestinians, Bedouin Palestinians... Um, There are, you know, obviously differences between different parts of uh, the country. The experiences of Gazan Palestinians are very different in many ways to the experiences of Palestinians living in uh, Jerusalem. Or even Palestinians known as the 1948 Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship. Um, I think that's the key message. I think it's trying to make sure that whenever we talk about Palestine and Palestinians, we are able to acknowledge and include that variety of lived experiences. Um, And I think oversimplification is part of the problem. And we see this today um, with the calls of uh, Trump trying to relocate unilaterally the um, American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem which would destabilise Palestinians, but also the peace process and also the entire Middle East. Thank you so much, Alice. 
um, and stick with us to hear Alice's conversation uh, with her two guests earlier this year. And I'm delighted to uh, introduce Dr. Nahad and Neri, who have been uh, on a panel this afternoon, organised by the Human Rights Centre, the Mitchell Institute, um, TCD and Geography here at Queen's. Um, I'll ask both of our speakers to briefly introduce themselves, please. My name is Nahad Habiballah. I am an assistant professor at the Arab American University in Ramallah. I teach uh, graduate students in uh, the conflict resolution program and the intercultural communication. My interest is sociology of religion and uh, political uh, sociology. Hey, my name is Nehru Ramati. I'm a human, a human rights lawyer from Israel. Uh, I'm a partner in uh, Gabriel Lasky office. We are uh, dealing mainly with the uh, question of uh, freedom of protest and uh, and freedom of uh, speech. Uh, I myself mainly represent Palestinians in the military courts in the occupied territories. Thank you. Mary, could you tell us a little bit about your work within uh, the military court system? I arrived to the military courts, my first day in the military court. I was um, uh, just finishing my law degree and I started my uh, apprenticeship. And the lawyer that I worked with, she was pregnant with uh, twins. And we, we had a case in the military court. She said, I'm not going there pregnant with twins. <laughs> you go there. So that was my first case ever. And I went there, and it didn't look like courts that I saw on TV. <laughs> and I entered. And there was a guy who was arrested in a demonstration in uh, Bulus. And I came in front of the judge and I started arguing freedom of speech, basic law rights, the constitution. And then like in the middle of it, he stopped me and he said, um, so it's your first time here. Huh? And uh, I said, yeah. And he said, okay, go study and come back in a week. We will keep your client in jail for that week. And... Since then, I'm studying because it's very it's a very complex uh, system. It's a system that builds from six different legal systems and it's constantly changing. So it's very challenging. I think the main problem of it today, or ever, not only today, is that there is no connection between the people who are trialed and the people who try them. When we think about the justice system in, in the philosophical way, we think about uh, that the, we, we decide and we accept courts because we want them to keep our interest as society. We say, okay, we are following the laws because generally they are to, to the benefits of the general society. What, what happened in the military courts is not that. There is the interest the interest of the population that are getting to those courts, which are Palestinians, and there is the interest of the people who are trying them, which, is, which are Israelis. And the court is only taking care of the interest of the Israelis and not, not of his clients. Thank you. You mentioned that there are a number of legal systems which are used in these courts. Um, could you tell us um, a bit more about 
which um, laws apply in these courts and um, how they are chosen? Uh, it's a long story, but we can say that generally, because the laws are based on the laws of occupation, and the law of occupation says that the previous law of the land is the law. And after that, the military commander of in the Palestinian territories has started to legislate his own, and they are influenced from the Israeli laws also. So there, there are few systems that are living together, and from what I find out, the army and the military prosecution are using a system of cherry-picking the specific laws that will give the the most control on Palestinians with giving them the least rights that they can get. Nahid, based on your research, um, what are the key themes um, around everyday life experiences for Palestinians in Jerusalem? So Palestinian Jerusalemites are affected on many different levels. Uh, first of all, the fact that geographically, through uh, Israeli's uh, spatial planning, they have been disconnected from the, the West Bank. So in many cases, they have uh, been left in an alienated uh, position. On another level, um, the system uh, that has been uh, used by the Israeli government to control them has affected uh, them from an, a socioeconomic perspective. And uh, many Palestinians, especially uh, youngsters, are in a position where they are unable to pursue a better kind of life. For those who have the means, in many cases, they leave the country altogether uh, to pursue an education or work. Perhaps um, it would be interesting for our listeners to hear about the direction your research is taking. Would you be happy to share some of uh, your current and future projects? Well, actually, uh, after working on uh, the issue of uh, Jerusalem, I started realizing that there are some issues that could be investigated in relation to uh, the Palestinian identity in general and how through this uh, disruption of uh, the harmonious living experience of the Palestinian uh, people, the state of Israel is affecting how Palestinians might uh, portray uh, themselves in the future. I mean, in uh, in many ways, um, Palestinian identity as a na national identity in relation to nationhood, self-determination, all that is still valid, but it becomes more a symbolic kind of identity. Thank you. Um, Mary, back, back to you um, and back to the um, Israeli legal system as a, a whole. Um, are there any other... Uh, themes that you're um, looking into at the moment that have emerged from your practice that you think require further research? At the moment, I'm finishing a, a research about uh, the questioning te techniques of the GSS, the General Security Services. Uh, during my time as a lawyer in, in the courts, I, I think I, I tried, I started to get more and more cases of people who were going through those questioning. Now, until the end of the 90s, physical torture was the most common way to do those questioning. But in the end of the 90s, the Supreme Court ruled against physical uh, torture and limited it to very, very, very uh, narrow way of action in very specific cases. Uh, but 
when I started to look at it, I saw that the confession rates didn't deteriorate. So something replaced the, the physical torture. And I started, as, as I was getting more and more cases, I started to get to look on the system. So I took 100 cases for a year of people who were going through those questioning, and I tried to look at the system. And the system is actually uh, uh, intelligently cruel. And you take, most of the time, two people from a certain group of, of, of from a village or from a group, of, and you bring them to the questioning uh, facilities inside Israel of the GSS. Now there, the most efficient tool is the room that they are kept in. It's a room that is like two meter by a meter. There is mattress on the floor. At the toilet is a hole in the ground. There is no windows. Uh, there is light bulb of like 24 vo uh, volts, uh, 24 hours, and air conditioning working very, very, very hard. And you have some very small blanket, and you they leave you there, and you have no clock or watch and you don't know day night and and the whole thing is happening in that facility so it means that you never go out of it when you need to extend your arrest the court is coming to those facilities and extending the arrest inside those facilities while the the client is blindfolded brought into another room uh, sentenced for another days of, of questioning and going out so most of our clients are just, after a few days of, of staying in that room, are willing to say everything. Uh, after that, there is the questioning themselves. There are long, long hours of questioning. It, uh, it's done by a GSS investigator, and they don't document what happened in this questioning. It's like memos. So if the guy is... Um, not cooperating for the whole questioning, which is like 14 hours, it will be half a page of a memo saying, we asked him, he refused. We explained to him that he should cooperate with us. He refused. Okay, But if he confessed, then the, the pages start to fill up with everything that he confessed on. But this is not actually the evidence, because this evidence should be written and should be documented. So after he confessed he gets moved to another room where a policeman is sitting and he copies that into Arabic, what he said in the in the other room and ask him, is this right? And he just said it to the other room so he will not deny and he, they made him sign it and this is an evidence that was given in front of a policeman in the language of the... and this is the, the evidence that is presented in court. Now if that's not enough, then come the tricky case. Most a lot of times they are telling them your questioning is finished and you are going now to prison, and he is leaving the place, the horrible place, and he's taking into a car and driving to a prison, and in that prison there is a cell with light and people and food, and he's getting into the cell. There are like ten to twelve people there, and they are treating him, and then something happens. Someone comes to him in that cell and, and telling him, listen. You are Fatah, but this cell is Hamas. And the commander of the cell is really crazy. He killed already 18 people. He doesn't care about killing another one. And he hates collaborators. So you better tell him everything you ever did for the resistance or 
he will kill you. Now this whole cell, those all 12 people, are Palestinian collaborators who are working for the GSS, and the guy has no idea that it is because it looks exactly like a prison. And he talks there, of course he talks. And he talks and he invents things because he is afraid of being killed by the... And then he is brought back to the questioning. And in the questioning he said, Oh, I saw you said that and that and that. Now repeat it to me. And then he goes to the police and he repeats it. And then you go to court. And you as a lawyer want to present what happened in that jail. And it's all sealed evidence. So you cannot present any of it. Only you, the only thing you get is the confession in front of the policeman. So this is how it works. That's uh, quite uh, quite something. Perhaps a final question, um, which is a disciplinary question. What advice um, from um, sociology could one give lawyers in their research, and what advice can lawyers give sociologists in their research? Well, I'm not sure about uh, advice. Um, it seems that Neri has uh, done a good job in looking at uh, the sociological aspect of the law and how it, it uh, changes and transforms or utilized uh, by the State of Israel depending on uh, the needs uh, that uh, the state uh, wants from that. Um, and uh, I think it's also interesting to look at the loopholes that uh, such uh, laws create because in the end uh, uh, they are there for a reason, but sometimes uh, they uh, neglect uh, certain aspects of uh, uh, justice. And uh, Neri, how, how do you think law can be of use to sociologists? Well, uh First, I agree with that. Uh, a lot of the worst regime in the world has a, had a very functional legal system. And I think it's very interesting to look why. why what is there in Israel-Palestine that, uh, that evokes so much use of the law and not of, of just brute power? Because, you know, we look to the north... We look at Syria. It's not interesting to look at the legal system in Syria right, right now because they're just killing each other. What is there in the mechanism, first of Israel, is that they need so much the legal justification all the time? And what is it in the Palestinian that they accept it? Because there is, when I come to court, I also see that they accept those court verdicts on them. And I say, why do you accept it? Why all of you did not just come and say, I do not recognize this bullshit court? But all of them want to play inside the system. So I think it's interesting in a sociological point of view to look at those things. Do they have a choice? I mean, uh, if... Uh, you can they... come and say, I do not recognize you. The outcome will be the same. But there is something that people are... There is something about obeying to the... To the to the authority, to the, there is, it looks like a court. If it looks like a court, then maybe it's a court. There is a judge and he sits up there. Then maybe I can talk to him, you know? But I mean, this is the power of the occupation in, uh, on the one hand, because uh, as you are, I mean, you're right in saying that, because uh, uh, in many aspects it uh, dehumanizes the victim. And uh, as you said, uh, they reach a point where 
maybe they they do play into the yeah. yeah. So it's the power structures at play within a context that uh, we all research, um, which is why it's so important to keep up the good work. And uh, we look forward to having you back at uh, Queen's in Belfast very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Killeen. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. And LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Alice Panapinto, Neri Ramati and Nahed Hababala for this episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB LawPod. You can find us on iTunes and anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen and this was LawPod. Thank you.